Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. Here at Theopolis, we train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This is the giving season for us at Theopolis. We are entirely donor-funded. Uh, by supporters of our work. And as we close in on this end of the fiscal year, uh, we do ask that you would consider becoming a Theopolis partner with us. You can find a link down there in the show notes if you'd like to give to our work. As a Theopolis partner, you'll receive a weekly newsletter from Peter Lightheart, which is called The Theopolitan. It's a very substantial newsletter that he's been writing for several years now. You'll also get free audio uh, of our courses, as well as an upcoming free audiobook of Lightheart's Theopolitan Vision. And you'll also, in a few weeks, get the first chapter of his forthcoming book, God of Hope. I'm joined today by Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John as we continue our walk through the book of James. And to begin where we left off last week, uh, let me begin by reading James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So to remember a bit of the context here, these Christians that James is writing to are persecuted and dispersed, likely by the Jews who have not joined this new movement and have not come under submission to Jesus. And remembering the context of the early church, such as Acts 2, uh, with Christians selling their possessions, and also the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, um, it's easy to assume a few things. Um, One is that some of these persecuted saints had likely sold their possessions to share all things in common with their new brothers and sisters, their new community. And there was also likely a temptation to appease these persecutors and to relieve their suffering uh, to some degree by giving in to them. Uh, Now, these verses about the rich here at first glance seem to be making a blanket statement about those who just plain out have money and have possessions. So to begin, my, my question is, how does the broader context of James do justice and doing justice to the whole letter affect our reading of of these verses here? Well, I mean, one thing to think about just as we kick off is that James certainly isn't the only passage in scripture where it does feel like there's this kind of blanket condemnation of the rich. And so one example might be um, Jesus' parable of the um, rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, where there's nothing spoken about the lack of faith um, of the rich man or about the godliness, in fact, of of the poor Lazarus. And so um, some people have interpreted that as some blanket condemnation of the rich. Now, I think in that case, in in the case of Jesus' parable, there's a lot of mileage in thinking about the fact, why is is Lazarus lying at this uh, guy's gates? And if the rich man is a... um, uh, a true practitioner of the law, isn't his job to to go and feed these people and uh, provide for those who are in his gates? You know, literally a, a requirement of Torah. And so, um, uh, I, I do think that um, it, it's James's teaching here isn't um, alone, and there's uh, benefit we can get from pressing into it a bit more. Again, if we think about this in terms of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, we see a lot of the 
threads that James is picking up come from Jesus' own teaching, the way that Jesus speaks about those who are hungry now, that they, sh- they are blessed because they will be satisfied. Those who weep now, they shall laugh. There's something about the time in which they're living that's an evil day, a day that advantages those who are predators, as it were. And as a result, there's going to be a time of reckoning that's going to come. They fatten themselves in a day of slaughter, as we see later on in the book. And Jesus warns again in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There is an investment on the part of the rich in this day and age, and they're going to discover that when the time comes, um, they're found without the true riches. And so Jesus' teaching on many occasions returns to these themes of wealth and poverty and where true riches are to be found. And here I think also we're dealing with the sort of transvaluation of values that we often encounter within the New Testament, where the weak are strong, where um, wisdom is proved to be foolishness, where those who are suffering and those who seem to be the losers in society are those who are actually blessed. Those who want to rule become the servant of all. And in all of these ways, there's a sort of turning of the world in all of its impression impression and injustice upside down. And so I think we need to read this very much against the background of a situation of persecution, which is advantaging the rich and the oppressive, and a situation where the true wealth is situated not in earthly wealth, but in the wealth of the kingdom of God. And so James's teaching here is very much in the same context as the teaching that we see Jesus give in the Gospels. Yeah, those are great points. Uh, I'd add to that that we bear in mind that this letter, this missive, would have been read in its entirety to the whole assembly. And so we can sometimes zero in on passages like this and overgeneralize them. But as the letter was being read, everybody would have understood who James is talking about here. There are the lowly brothers, and then there are the rich, and the rich turn out to be the men who show up into your synagogue wearing fine clothing and uh, actually robes of authority and gold rings, signet rings, um, and they come in and they're these these uh, Christians are tempted to treat them in a certain way. I do think that there's really something to the connection between verse 8 in chapter 1 and verse 9. It's connected in the Greek with a de, D-E. Um, and so it's like, rather, you know, don't be double-minded. Rather, the lowly brother should glory in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So their temptation is to think that if they either curry favor with the rich or they themselves became rich without reference to anything else that they could overcome these difficulties. But at any rate, as, as they're reading this letter, they would see that the ones who are rich and are coming into their assembly, uh, they're the ones who dishonored the poor man. They're the ones who oppress them. Verse six of chapter two, they're the ones who drag them into court and they're the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which was invoked over you, which surely refers in some sense to baptism. 
And then when we come to chapter five, and Alistair has already alluded to this, you have this prophetic denunciation from James, come now, you rich, that these rich are the ones who, again, have the garments, have the gold and the silver. Um, they have this treasure. Uh, they've laid up treasure in the last days. And these are the theocratically rich. These are the Jerusalem elites, if you will. And they have held back the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields. Well, that turns out to be a reference to the apostles and the apostolic preaching and the fact that the Pharisees, scribes, elders, chief priests, rulers, synagogue, rulers, synagogue didn't, didn't, didn't acknowledge the preaching of the apostles because Jesus sent them out into this harvest, which was rich and ready for harvest. These are the ones who've lived on the land gloriously in self-indulgence. And they're the ones who've murdered the righteous one, possibly Jesus, or possibly just righteous ones in their midst. So uh, as the letter progresses, uh, it's pretty clear who these rich are. And it's not just like rich plantation owners, Christian plantation owners in in Judea. Of course, there are lots of things that would apply to them, but that's not specifically who's addressed. Yeah, that's one of the things I found most helpful about this section in your commentary, Jeff, was um, there on page 49, you mentioned that, you know, Israel and uh, these Jews had not only property and the temple, but they also had a, a deep structure to their religion that had been given to them by Yahweh and how powerful that is to this new group of, I mean, I mean, it's obviously new, but it feels very ragtag. A lot of these letters from Paul and from others are kind of getting the church set up in an order. And, you know, we now, 2000 years later, are in a church, uh, church that to one degree or another is organized and established and has been around for a very long time. The patterns of the church are worn into a lot of us. And it's, it's easy for us to forget how these early Christians we're not so much on the solid ground that we are now just in regards to the structure and uh, the comfort that comes from that. I was talking with uh, Jerry Barrier about this the other day, and he made, a, he made a good comment and reminded everybody, it reminded me that the temple was not just a place of worship and sacrifice, but it was also a treasury. There was lots of treasure uh, in the storehouses that surrounded the temple proper. And, and of course, there also the temple is adorned with gold and silver, quite a wealthy edifice. And all of these Christians left that behind when they were exiled. They left property, they, some of them left family, maybe left jobs to uh, hightail it out of Jerusalem to avoid persecution. So they truly are destitute. They're, they're definitely the underprivileged in this story. One of the places in the Old Testament where we see the language of gospel first being introduced is in the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And in that context, we have words that I think James is picking up on here. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That seems to be, along with the teaching of Jesus, 
a prominent theme within James, that there is this day of reversal coming, that things that seem to be certain, whether your plans for the future, whether your earthly wealth, whether your status in this life, are not in fact certain, and that there is a futility to many of the forms of endeavour that people have given themselves to, and the things in which they trust. True treasure is found elsewhere, and there is a recognition on the part of the rich here that all their earthly treasure is not where their heart should be placed. It's not where their investment of themselves should be, because they should recognize that these things are fleeting, and especially in days like those where judgment is near on the horizon. And we can think about this also in terms of our Lord's teaching that the rich need to learn if you're going to, if you want your heart to be in the right place, you need to recognize the way that your heart is connected with your treasure. And if your treasure is very much in this earth, you need to reorder your heart relative to your treasure. One of the best things to do to set your heart on heavenly things is to invest your heart in invest your treasure in things that will lead your heart in that direction. So give to the poor or give to the work of the Lord in other ways. Or we might think about the way that the rich are invited here to um, take a very different posture of heart towards their wealth, to recognize that it is fleeting, to give those things that seem to be so solid and certain and sure, to give them this new assessment as if they're going to tally up their wealth. And now they're going to recognize that all those things that they, the words of the Apostle Paul, the things that they formerly counted gain are not actually gain. They're things tethering them to an age that is fleeting. And if they really want to find true treasure, they need to recognize the fleetingness of that, put it more in the um, liabilities column, and then think about where their true investment and their true treasure lies. Yeah, that idea of a reversal obviously deals well um, in addition with the example of the Luke 16 parable that, that I gave. There, the um, uh, the fates of the rich and, and the poor man are completely reversed in the afterlife. And I guess the rich man who's done his feasting on earth um, has no feast in, in, in the world to come for him. And, and, and so there is that... Um, Utter reversal of fortunes, yeah, which which James um, picks up. Just by way of um, clarification, though, um, Jeff, I, I wanted to ask you a, a bit about this notion of the, of the temple. I, I'm um, I'm unclear as to what it might mean for a rich person or anyone in Israel to sort of trust in the riches of the temple. I mean, it, it sounds to me. Um, a bit like an Italian trusting in the riches of the Vatican. I mean, it might have lots of gold and silver, but it's never going to give it to the average beggar in Italy. So it, it kind of feels a, a strange idea. I mean, I mean, may, maybe you could borrow money from the temple or, or something. I don't know enough about how the economy worked. What, what did you have in mind there, Jeff? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I just think in general, the, the idea that we have riches, um, so especially the leadership, of Israel, that we're rich, we're wealthy, we have power, uh, and it's, uh, I mean, that that temple would be kind of like in the modern world for Americans, for example, you know, our Capitol buildings or all of our buildings in D.C. 
um, or something like that, or, or Wall Street. Uh, I don't necessarily have access to Wall Street or to the glorious kinds of architectural symbols in DC, but I, that can be a source of trust for me, uh, a, the, a source of peace, kind of like what uh, the people said to Jeremiah in, in those days, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, nothing's going to happen to us uh, because we have the temple in our midst. So that's, that's the way I was thinking of it. And I think Brian said something earlier, uh, linking this to like ecclesiastical wealth today. Uh, I think what a couple ways to apply this is there are lots of denominations, lots of ecclesiastical organizations that are quite wealthy. I mean, in terms of material goods um, or land or property or institutions, that can be a source of temptation, temptation to uh, become proud, become arrogant and think somehow that, you know, we're set. We have endowments. Uh, so what do we have to worry about? Uh, and lots of times what happens in some of these instances, especially in America, what has happened some of these institutions go astray, uh, believing more believing Christians leave these or leaving churches leave these massive denominations and they leave behind wealth, a great deal of wealth in order to be faithful to the Lord. They might even leave behind their nice stone buildings. Um, and, and the people that are left behind have this idea somehow that because we have all this, we possess all this, uh, this is ours, that there's some security and safety in that. And I, I think that's, it's pretty sure that's what's going on there in, in the first century. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 23, denouncing the scribes and Pharisees, and then in Matthew 24, all this is going to come down. The disciples think that the glory of the this new temple is something splendid, amazing. Jesus says, it's all coming down. You can't trust in it. Uh, don't think that's going to be your security in the, in the new world that I'm bringing. So things like that, if that makes sense. I think you can definitely see that sort of attitude in um, contexts where people have a an amazing basilica or cathedral. It becomes the source of many people's trust and pride. And if that were lost, they it would be a devastating blow for their faith. The way that Jesus' disciples talk about the building of the temple or the way that Jesus, again, speaks about the blind guys who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. This seems to be addressed at the sort of attitude that you're describing, Jeff. It's, and it seems to be very much something that you can encounter in certain contexts today still. Right, right. So we're seeing it, yeah, not so much as something that would pay out and help individuals, but just as this kind of um, symbol of national security that kind of bolsters the uh, nation. And then you can attach yourself to Israel um, as a, a rich Jew, let's say, and, and then feel very secure. Um, that kind of, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I'm also put in mind, I guess, in part of the um, parable of the sower and we have a lot of its influence, I think, that parable throughout James and the imagery um, as well of, of the sowing and, and reaping of harvest. And, and there you get um, paired with one another, like, you know, the worries 
of this life and the deceitfulness of uh, wealth, I, I think it is, and, and um, choking, choking the word. And I do wonder if, like, in verse 10 at least, the rich isn't just to sort of realise the, um, you know, the eternal worthlessness of his riches, but he, he's even to glory in it. And I, I wonder if there's a sense in which uh, the rich, yes, they are to... to realize that their wealth won't sort of buy them out of trouble but once you've realized that and not um prized your wealth there might be a sense of worry you know um god's given me these riches what am i to do with them i meant to invest them wisely am i meant to build new barns etc and i i wonder if sort of the um uh the rich is to rejoice in his humiliation um in in the sense that there is a kind of once you realise that if you do have riches, um, that they're all in God's hand and that ultimately they will all pass away and you've just been given them for a fixed amount of time to steward them as wisely as you can. I wonder if that can take a lot of weight off your shoulders. You, you, you don't have to feel that you have to lay them up for a generation to come or, or feel this great burden to, to sort of um, preserve and, and protect them, but you can be almost fairly carefree um, with those riches. One virtue we don't talk that much about today, but um, my wife Susanna often goes on about is magnificence. The rich person who has great wealth has the potential to perform magnificent acts. They can give all their money to the poor. They can um, engage in these great acts of creation and um, investing in the kingdom of God in particular ways. And that sort of magnificence is something that they've been free to do by their great wealth. It's not something that um, they might be encouraged to do within general society. But when they truly realize the character of their wealth, that is not something of ultimate security or value, they are freed in some way to act with magnificence, to do things that are dramatic for the kingdom of God. They can cast their bread on the waters. They can engage in the sorts of activity that Ecclesiastes talks about, the way in which once you realize that you are not ultimately in control of all of these things and that you cannot control the destiny of all your, your wealth, you can actually engage in activities that other people would not. And there's a sense of entrepreneurial freedom that the rich person is liberated into with this new assessment of what their wealth means. Yeah, I, that's a great point. And it fits with this passage too, because James, well, no place in the New Testament do we think that uh, Christians are going to be destitute and impoverished all the time forever. There is going to be a, an enrichment of the Christian church, but it's going to come in ways that they have not expected. That's part of what James is about. We're going to get into that section in the middle in a minute about being steadfast under trial. But so they've given up almost everything. I, I remember back to when Jesus talking to his disciples and he talks about taking up your cross and following me. And then Peter or one of the apostles says to him, or one of the disciples says to him, oh, what about us, Lord? We've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus says, oh yeah. And in the kingdom, you're going to get rewarded for that. And I can't remember the exact terms of the reward, but it's like, you know, double a hundredfold, something like that. 
And in, in this case, with this early first fruits church, they need to recognize that their impoverishment is not a permanent condition, um, but can lead to a, a glorious kind of richness uh, so that they can be magnificent in their works of charity and in their works of service in the world. And that's not going to come to them automatically without this maturing process that we read about earlier and that we get in verse 12. So, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in their trial, and he will receive the crown of life. Okay, there's a crown. There's, there's ruling coming up. Again, if this is wisdom literature to these suffering Christians, it's about how to rule and how to acquire the wisdom necessary to rule, and it's going to come in a way that you all should have known about because Jesus told you about it. I didn't even tell you about it, but he embodied it. Uh, you know, he suffered, he died, he gave himself for us, and then he was resurrected and ascended and made Lord. Well, so you also are going to get this crown of life, and, and you just need to remain steadfast. You need, just need to suffer under what God has brought to you uh, to mature you, to give you the necessary wisdom for ruling, for this crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. There is a bit of an imprecatory psalm-like nature to 9 through 11, where the lowly brother is called to take comfort in the destruction of the wicked. And the, and the words aren't soft there. You know, the sun's going to rise and the scorching heat is going to wither the grass and the flower is going to fall and the beauty is going to perish. Uh, and we're, we're called, uh, James is hearers and, and now us, we're called to uh, glory in that to a degree and, and take comfort in the fact that God will punish those who are not in line with what he's doing in the world. And uh, the comfort here, I mean, there was an immediate fulfillment to this, uh, maybe not immediate, but uh, in AD 70, you know, these things came to a head as the Roman empire was destroying apostate Judaism. I find that really interesting that, you know, at just around the corner, there was a fulfillment of these verses. Um, yeah. And so we can, we can also take comfort that though all things have not been made right yet, these promises uh, apply to us and will be fulfilled as well. Yeah. And uh, also notice how this tracks with Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, where he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and then, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Okay. There you have the poverty of the lowly brother and the the slander of the rich Jews who are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will be tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, so you have that same, that same kind of language, that same kind of uh, progression here in James 1, 9 through 12 as well. And I think if you just if you if you get that progression in your mind, you'll see it all through the New Testament uh, gospels and epistles. And here I think James is filling out some of um, what he's been talking out about in the first few verses, the trials of various kinds and the testing of your faith. Here we see very clearly what is the end of that testing. 
the divine purpose is that the person who is steadfast under those trials will receive the crown of life. And he's also distinguishing at this point between the ways that we might experience these as a sort of temptation and the fact that God is not the one who's tempting us. God may expose us to testing, but the temptation comes from the evil one and not from the Lord himself. And so what we see here, I think, is filling out what he has already uh, stated at the very beginning and giving us a better understanding of um, how to discern what's taking place when we're faced with temptation and testing, to recognize what is good and the positive purpose of being exposed to testing, the divinely intended purpose, but then also recognizing that there can be elements of temptation within those forms of testing that can lead us to fall. And those are not actually coming from God, but they're coming from our, uh, this, uh, they're coming from the world, the flesh and the devil. And that understood that way, we can turn to the Lord with confidence that he wants our good through this. And that for every temptation, he has provided a way of escape. We won't be tempted beyond our ability to resist. And yet also to recognize the genuine danger that is within these situations. It's probably important to remember the difference between testing and temptation in the sense of a seduction. So verse 13, let no one stay when he is tempted or tested. I'm being tempted or seduced by God. God cannot be tempted with evil and he does not seduce anyone. And it's, it's a, something of a fine line, but it's important to keep them distinct because, of course, God does test us. God tests Abraham in uh, Genesis 22 when he asked him to sacrifice his son. God tests Jesus uh, in Matthew 4 after the baptism. This is a son I love, and the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, And there's obviously this test that's going on here in the life of these recipients of this letter. And certainly God is overseeing all this, but he's not luring them to do what they are being tempted to do from their own hearts, from, from their own evil hearts. They're being, uh, they're being lured and enticed uh, to do things, to say things that would end up proving that they're not passing the test, uh, that they're not really receiving the instruction in wisdom that God, their heavenly father, is trying to give them as sons that he wants, he wants them to rule. So I think, I think it's, it, it, it's, it even seems like, and I think I say this in, in the commentary somewhere, it even seems like these Christians are being tempted to think that God is playing games with them. He's promised a righteous kingdom. He's promised to make things right. He's promised to rectify their world, their individual lives, their families, their city, their land. And yet it seems to be going the other direction, topsy-turvy on them. And so apparently they are being tempted to think that God is not being honest with them. He's being deceptive. And it, 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 this is... This is a common temptation I see as a pastor, is that when trouble hits, 
when difficulty we encounter difficulties and we encounter horrible difficulties like death and suffering and, and cancer and accidents is our first thought is to think, well, either what did I do wrong? Why is God punishing me? Or we're, we're tempted to distrust the, the goodness of God. Uh, it's a Psalm, there, it's a Psalm 73 kind of encounter. You know, when I looked at the rich, they don't have the problems I'm having. What's the deal? But I, why am I wasting away? Why is, why am I uh, struggling so hard? Um, and there's this temptation all of us have to think either that God is playing with us or maybe in modern context and secular context, well, maybe he's really not there. Maybe this is all just chance and, and luck and uh, the random interface of, of uh you know, molecular kinds of, you know, things in the world. So this this is a helpful passage for people to reflect on when they're in these kind of difficult situations of suffering, not to be deceived, verse 16, into thinking somehow God is evil and he's playing games with us. It's also important pastorally to not just discern between tests and temptations and saying that temptation does not come from God, but also just to say that temptation is not sin, you know, temptation when it's, how does he say it? The desire when it's uh, conceived gives birth to sin, but temptation is something that Christ uh, went through that Jesus went through in, in the wilderness. And he's the one who's uh, subtly referenced in this in this text and blessed is the man who remains steadfast blessed is the man hearkening back to psalm one jesus is that blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and he uh he's the blessed one and he was tempted and so just pastorally some of the most helpful words i received as a young man in the church from my pastor was uh as someone who was uh who felt very much overwhelmed by temptations of various sorts the pastor telling me, listen, your sins are forgiven. And that temptation is not, if it has not given birth to sin, you're not in sin right now. So learn to rest. Temptation is something that is common to all men, even Christ himself. Good point. Jeff, just kind of shoring up that point that you were making, that there might be some uh, danger that under temptation, some of these believers are going to think God is yeah, playing games with me or, or, or something of that uh, nature. This may well be why God, I'm um, uh, sorry, not God, uh, well, ultimately God, but James in verse um, 17 then refers to God as the, the father of lights and, and the one who gives good gifts and, and perfect gifts. That seems to, to want to uh, undercut the same temptation that we, that we might have to, to, uh, yeah, think think of God as as this kind of um, uh, cruel experimenter, you know. Um, uh, as I'll, I'll I'll do this and see how my create uh, see how my creatures behave and and so on. That that seems to play into the same idea. He's also banking again off this theme in James about maturity. Every good and every mature gift, or every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of Lights. We're back to this theme of whatever you're going through, these gifts, these are gifts to you, whether it's testing or suffering or trouble from the father of lights. And of course, that harkens back to the fourth day and 
God creates the lights, but the lights that he creates are not just there to mark time or because they're pretty. They're also signs and symbols of rulers, uh, greater light to rule a day, lesser light to rule the night. And you see this all through scripture. And so we're back to him holding out the promise of the crown of life, ruling as lights in the world. The father is light. Jesus is light. We're also lights. Um, cities set on a hill to give light to the world, uh, Matthew 5. Um, so uh, it, it, this, is, this is what God does. He's maturing you to the place where you can rule, um, bringing you to along this path of completion, teleos, perfection, if you will, but I think maturity or completion is better, so that you will lack nothing. And this fits also with verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth in the word of truth or by the word of truth, uh, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, crea- of his creatures. Okay, this is a first fruits church. And first fruits, as we know, is the first, first part of the harvest uh, that is a foretaste of what's to come. And so if this is a first fruits church, then they are going to learn how to rule through this suffering, uh, and they are be- going to become mature through their experience of tribulation and trouble, so that they can be an example to the church that comes afterwards about how God works with us and how the church is meant to grow and come to completion in all sorts of different situations. Again, I, I also think that the first fruits here is a reminder that this is the, this is the early church. This is the apostolic church. This, this means that probably that we're early on in the time of the church uh, in, in the book of Acts as well. It seems to me that one of the most important lessons that we need to learn in times of trial and struggle is just the goodness of God that <clears throat> That, as Jesus teaches at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And in the context, we've been talking about people asking for wisdom from the Lord. And the Lord wants to give that good gift to people. The Lord isn't a fickle God, a God who is um, changeable in the way that human beings can be. He's a God who is consistent and faithful and um and one who keeps his character his character is not something that uh, wavers he's not uncertain and um unreliable as human beings can be he keeps his promises and with that rock solid confidence you can make your way through trial knowing that those things that you need will be received from the hand of a, a good god that you're able to discern that the evils and the temptations that you face are not from the Lord. And that's very clear because you know the Lord's character. And on the other hand, you know that you can turn with absolute faith and confidence and trust and love to the Lord, knowing that you will receive nothing but what you need from him and that he will be faithful, that whatever you need, he will give to you. And he wants to give you these good gifts. He's not a God who's testing you in order to trip you up. He's not a God who wants you to fail. He's a God who wants to give you his good gifts 
and he wants to give you wisdom. He wants to give you the wisdom through the trial. And so you know that as you're experiencing the trial, that his end is the good end of giving you the crown of life and having you attain to the maturity of sonship that we see, of course, in Christ himself, who attained to that through his sufferings and through the obedience that he learned through those sufferings. That's what God has in store for us too. And yet, so often we can draw back into that um, doubt of, is God actually good? Is God actually on my side? Is God actually a God who gives good gifts? Or is this a, a poisoned um, providence? And the more that we fall into that way of thinking, the more that we'll find ourselves floundering and unable to work through these trials. But yet, when we take hold of that rock of the Lord's character, we'll be able to work even in the darkness of the trials and find a way through them. All right. That all really resonates with the Genesis 1 themes that Jeff has already mentioned that are all in verses 16 through 18 here. I mean, you just mentioned all those things about the Lord's goodness and and just knowing that there's no variation or shadow due to change with him. And just like in Genesis 1, you know, he, the father of lights language is there, but also Genesis three, do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, verse 16 says like Eve was deceived. Adam and Eve were given all of these good gifts from the father of lights and they were giving every, everything that they would ever need. And they were put through a test and uh, their temptation, unfortunately, was conceived and gave birth to sin through deception and through high handed sin with Adam. Um, but that Genesis one language is Genesis 1 through 3 languages all over this passage. Alistair mentioned um, Sermon on the Mount, it, and we'll be saying this over and over again, so many allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in James. Uh, Alistair mentioned the Father in heaven giving good gifts to those who ask him in Matthew 6. Um, there's another really almost, it's almost as if James is, 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 is commenting and applying this passage in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, of course, James is dealing with, with Christians who don't want to love their enemies. They want to bring them down. The rhetoric is, is about violence and aggression and payback. And that's going to come up as we go through. So Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Okay. In other words, you're not, you're not going to rule if you behave like that. And then, of course, he ends this, you therefore must be perfect or mature as your heavenly father is mature. So the father sets the pattern for the life of his sons, of his son, singular. Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered, Hebrews 5, but also of we, his adopted sons. We also have to have this, not just this kind of attitude, but this kind of behavior. And that's what's lacking in the communities that James is writing to. They don't appreciate the fact that as a first fruits church, they are going to set the pattern for the behavior of future generations of Christians. And that it, it, it is amazing. We'll, I'll say this again sometime that James's wisdom, James's advice, James's rebuke 
in the whole letter seems to have worked. <laughs> um, the you don't you don't read a whole lot about uh, violent reprisals from Christians in the early church after after this. I was thinking about Jeff. You have these really great several page uh, kind of closing comments sections in your commentary. I was curious if someone could speak about uh, James as being Jacob writing to the church here, and just that line of Jacob wrestling with God and receiving the blessing, learning wisdom through through trial and through wrestling. Israel needing to do the same, uh, but failing Christ doing that. And now the church is called to, to walk in those same footsteps as the patriarch Jacob, as Israel was called to in our head, Jesus. Yeah, that, that, that seems to be one of the main themes of this whole section. So James talking about trial and testing. Remember that James is Jacob. Don't need to go through the etymology, but uh, ultimately this is, this is Jacob, a Greek translation of Jacob. So Jacob, remember, is the one whose faith is characterized by wisdom and discernment. So Jacob is wrestling, struggling, grappling with his brother in the womb, with his brother uh, when they're younger. Uh, his brother wants to kill him. Brother wants to come after him. So he has to flee. He's also struggling with his father, who is uh, not acting in a, in a faithful way. He's blind spiritually to the promises that God had made to Jacob and not to Esau. He is driven out of his home, like these Christians, up into Badanaram with his uncle Laban. And Laban mistreats him. He's not fair. He switches, <laughs> he switches, remember, Leah for Rachel. And then Jacob has to work even harder for Rachel. Then he has wives that he has to struggle with because there's trouble in his family. Finally, God blesses him and enables him to leave and to come back into the land. But when he comes back into the land, his brother, he hears, has amassed a company to come out and meet him. And Jacob is not sure what that's about. And so he sends some of his people ahead of him. And then at night, he is at the Jabbok River in Genesis 32 and wrestles. And it turns out that he's wrestling with God. And it's when he wrestles with God and God declares that he has prevailed, Jacob has prevailed with God and men in his wrestling throughout his life. He renames him Israel, Prince of God. He's now ruler. He's like, if I remember right, I think he's 97 years old. I think that's correct. He's an old, he's an old man. He's not as old as in that day as it 97 would be in our day, but it's, he's still a mature man. Um, and he, re he recognizes now, uh, and the place is called Peniel, face of God, because um, Jacob has seen the face of God and lived. But the, the fascinating thing is when he finally does meet Esau, he says that he sees in Esau the face of God. And so Jacob recognizes that all of his life has been God, his heavenly father, testing him, trying him but maturing him. And that is exactly 
what James wants these Christians to understand, that whatever trials they're undergoing because they've been displaced and their brothers are pursuing them, um, it will all end up being God's intention to complete them, to give them the maturity necessary for rule. And, and that, that's, that's the whole epistle has to do with that. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.